Today's episode of 77 Minutes in Heaven is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from the experts at GoToMeeting, all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Find us on smart speakers or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. You can listen at gotomeeting.com slash tips. That's gotomeeting.com slash tips. Welcome back to 77 Minutes in Heaven, your favorite Mavericks podcast here on the Athletic Network. I am Brian Damaris, and as always, joined by the play-by-play voice of the Mavs, Mark Followell. Hello there. How are you? Good to talk to you again, and uh, we have a fun show this week, because we're going to go back in the time machine to 1984 and, and probably the craziest single game in Mavericks history. So on April 17th, 1984, which is this uh, coming Friday is April 17th, so we're almost at the 36-year anniversary of the Mavericks' first playoff game. They started their first playoff series, Brian, the 4-5 matchup of the Western Conference in the 1984 first round, best of five series against Seattle. Uh, After four games, it was 2-2, which then leads us to the crazy game you're referring to. Many know it as Moody Madness. Some of our newer fans, though, probably may not realize what that was all about, what went down April 26, 1984, not at Reunion Arena, but at Moody Coliseum on the campus of SMU. The, 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 you know, now it's been downsized and refurbished to a 7,000-seat arena. This is, Brian, when it was still a little bit over a 9,000-seat arena where SMU played in the 80s. Yeah, and it was a barn. I mean, it, there, there wasn't much to it. It was a wooden-benched barn, very vertical, tight, tight uh, seating. And so we're going to talk to Kevin Sullivan, who, uh, among other titles, his last job was former White House communications director. But we're going to talk <laughs> Mavs with him as he was the PR director with the Mavs at the time. Yes. And then we're going to talk to the uh, hero and lead scorer of that game, Roe Blackman, on his perspective of Moody Madness. So we're going to have those two um, guests for you on this pod. And just a quick note, um, either next week or the week after, we're going to do a mailbag. So. Yes. We'll tweet this out, but send us your questions on Twitter at Damaris and at Unfollowell, anything related to the Mavs. And uh, we will answer those in a mailbag session. But for now, let's enjoy Kevin and Roe. Okay, Followell, we have a uh, special guest, Kevin Sullivan. Sully joins us. Um, Yay. Now running Kevin Sullivan Communications, and his previous job before that was White House Communications Director. But we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the Mavs, where he was PR Director for many, many years, and especially in 1984 for Moody Madness. Um, Sully, one thing I didn't remember till I was kind of looking into this game more this week was that four of the five games were played in different venues. And this just added to uh, the mess. What? Because so many of our listeners and readers on the athletic are are younger and and probably don't know a lot of the details. Uh, why was this game played at Moody Coliseum, and and how long did um, kind of the operations staff have and you to uh, put this all together? Well, thanks for having me on, uh, guys. The game was played at Moody at SMU because of 
believe it or not, at Reunion Arena, World Championship Tennis uh, had priority over the Mavericks on dates. WCT, which was a big deal at that time, was the founding property tenant of, of the building, uh, committed before an NBA team had, was committed to Dallas. So while we were playing the Sonics in this emotional, crazy game five, uh, before 9,007 people, exactly 8,000 people less than the capacity of Reunion Arena. Reunion Arena had uh, World Championship Tennis going on. And as I recall, when a score was announced, I believe it was Jimmy Connors paused and actually uh, shot a, pretended to shoot a basketball using the tennis ball that was in his hand. Uh, so, so that was a the connection there. Yeah, the first two games were played at Reunion. Game three was played at the Seattle Center Coliseum. As I recall, it's because the Kingdom, where the Sonics normally played, uh, was uh, booked. Uh, the Mariners were playing, I believe, is what happened there. And uh, and so so then Game Four uh, was at the Kingdom, and Game Five was at Moody. So the last four games of that series were played in four different buildings, which is just another astonishing thing that'll probably never never happen again. Yeah. So how long did, how long, yeah. How long was the process of knowing that this game would had to be played at Moody and, and kind of what went into yeah, it, that? It, it was 36 hours, which is, which is astonishing. And, and really when people ask me, you know, my memories or takeaways, there, there's the obvious big ones, but the one that never gets talked about is the work of, 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 of really two people. Uh, you know, Norm Sanju wanted to create this, the atmosphere as close as possible to reunion arena for this game five deciding, you know, at that time, the first round was a five game series. So you, you had two heroes at kind of working at Norm's direction. Number one was Steve Letson, the great Steve Letson, still the operations chief. As I recall, he was the ticket manager then. And so he had the job to, to really relocate the Mavericks season ticket holders, sponsors, partners, uh, everything, and including the operational aspects to Moody Coliseum and Norm asked him as part of this, you know, wanting to create this incredible atmosphere to, to Steve ended up bringing in an entirely new sound system. It was as if, you know, Metallica was playing or something. You know, we brought in this, this, this massive sound system to try to recreate the, 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 you know, the, the environment uh, there were, I actually looked this up in the media guide today and in 1983, 84, the entire Mavericks front office staff was 23 people. Uh, you know, it's in the hundreds today. So we had 23 of us. And so Steve was really kind of hero number one. And the other one was Keith Grant. Of course, now the assistant GM and another Maverick lifer like Lesson. And, you know, Steve, uh, Keith was the equipment manager then. And he was putting down the three-point line uh, with, 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 you know, tape on the floor, uh, making sure, you know, getting the NBA shot clocks in there, all those kind of basketball related operational things. And so, so those guys and, and, and really the whole front office, it was a Herculean undertaking, uh, and, and, and it was done kind of around the clock over, over, you know, less than two days. How did you have to adjust what you do solely from a media media uh, access point? Because that had to be also something that, that you were working with that you didn't have much familiarity with the building. And so you were having to make all kinds of adjustments on pregame media availability, postgame media availability, shoot-around media avail- availability, whatever it was that you had to do. How did you have to adjust your aspect of things? Yeah, 
you know, we, we had, we had training camp at Moody in those days. So we knew the building well, and we had done a number of preseason games there. Uh, the SMU people were extremely helpful. Uh, and, and so it all, it all came off. I mean, it was, it was definitely cozy. We had people, uh, in a, in a sound booth kind of thing upstairs, as I recall, uh, you know, jammed in there and, you know, just, we just created space. I think we used some seats in the stands for media. Uh, but it was really kind of whatever, whatever, it, whatever it took, uh, you know, to, uh, to, to get it done. But everybody was very cozy that, that, that night. How did you, and I, ha- and I really, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say it was the, really the first big, big moment in Mavericks history. Yeah. You know, deciding playoff game played in these unusual conditions. Uh, you know, uh, the the decibel level that night was so loud in there that uh, the HSC broadcast with Alan Stone and, and Scott Lloyd, on, on you know, as, as the analyst, uh, the audio, there was audio distortion on the broadcast, you know, because of the, some of the technical things and just the decibel level in there. Uh, it, it was really an atmosphere. It was a throwback kind of feeling, you know, small gym. I think one of the great quotes was Jack Sigma, the, who was the Sonic's best player afterwards. You know, he said, I, we felt on the bench, you know, 12 players, a couple coaches, we felt on the bench, like the whole place was coming down on top of us, you know? And he said, he said, uh, you know, it was loud and unusual. That's the playoffs. You're supposed to handle it, and we didn't handle it. So, so it was really not only the first big moment in Mavericks history, but just one that has lived on, you know, through the ages as just a sort of a once of a one of a kind surreal uh, moment in, in Dallas sports history. Sully, I have to ask, too, uh, you know, because in, in your role, you obviously would have been working closely with Alan Stone and Scott Lloyd, who you just mentioned, did the HSE telecast. Do you remember anything that you had to do that was unusual, uh, you know, to uh, to accommodate things from our perspective, uh, those of us on the TV broadcast side of things? Do you remember that you had to do anything for those guys that was that was out of the ordinary? You know, not really. I mean, the, the the volume in the building was a big thing. I think if you watch, you know, you can find the game on YouTube, and it's it looks like it's a fourth or fifth generation. It's not very – the quality is pretty shaky. Yeah. But you can tell that Alan and Scott are screaming at times above the crowd. You know, we had Sonics TV. We had, of course, two radio crews in there. And, again, everybody was was was, was cozy and tight. There was very little room to move behind the press table because the stands, you know, the bleachers there at Moody at that time – you know, for the fans, you know, this was way before the, the this is a couple of renovations of Moody Coliseum ago. So it was it was really like playing in a, you know, in a small, small college, you know, band box. Uh, but it was it made for an unforgettable night. Everybody, everybody had a good attitude about making it work. And and, uh, you know, it was uh, it was a crazy night and one that, you know, we'll never forget. And obviously one of the biggest uh kind of crazy moments was the you know the very last second of play which was eventually replayed uh in overtime and do you remember a how long the gap was between when the Mavericks went in the locker room and when right. play resumed and b uh where were you and and w- what was being replayed where it was being relayed to you so that you could tell the media kind of the explanation of what was going on a couple of things there it was 14 minutes seemed like 10 years uh, you know, the stack crew was under my jurisdiction. So, so I was in the middle of it. I, I left my seat at the end of the press table and was, was at one point, you know, in the background there with the crew trying to 
listen to the, what the officials were talking about and hear what was going to happen. Uh, uh, but I saw it was a, it was a long a long fourteen minutes. You know, really, I think what happened were a couple things. Is is the the, the clock operator first of all was screened out by Jay Vincent inbounding the ball. Mike Mathis, who was a great official for many many years, and of course his son Monty would later become a Mavs assistant coach. Uh, Mike had told the clock operator, uh, "You're never, you know, just wa- watch." Watch me. I'll chop my hand when when it's time to inbound the ball because uh, you can't hear you know you can't hear anything in here and and I'm not sure he ever gave the chop to be honest with you and the clock operator didn't couldn't really see nobody thought Jay Vincent was gonna you know kind of shove the ball into into Tom Chambers' chest or stomach he should have line drived it off his off his shoulder or his knee or his ankle. It was a weird play, and I, and I think Vincent had been instructed by Coach Mata, if nobody's open, you know, bang it off of Chambers, and Jay just kind of put it right in his stomach. And I don't think the clock operator saw what happened. And then the next thing you know, uh, Mathis is blowing the whistle, which the crew chief, Jake O'Donnell, later ruled was, in, you know, the wrong thing to do. So the operator had not started it because he didn't see the hand chop he was screened out on the play, which was this bizarre play that no one expected. And the next thing he knew, the whistle blew. So, so obviously in today's world, first of all, you would have had tenths of a second, not just, you know, solid one, two seconds, one second. And, and then the NBA in today's world, not only, even if you didn't have replay, they, they really should have, should have uh, waved it off that the clock should have started. And, and clearly a second had to have gone by by the time, Chambers got it out of his stomach and regrouped and heaved the shot up. So just another, just a bizarre set of circumstances. And today it would have been handled much, much differently. Uh, and thankfully it, it had a happy ending. Uh, also a bizarre set of circumstances. And I'm curious for your perspective on this as, as the head of communications, as the PR director, you, you have a lot of things going on at the end of a game. And I'm talking about the end of regulation in this particular case. So, so you're getting ready for whatever, you know, you're going to have to do at the end of the game, but then there's this dramatic shift in momentum in the final minute. It goes from 95, 89 to 95, 95 with uh, Rose steel. And then the five second call and Rose shot. And it was just uh, such an unbelievable turn of events so how as a uh trying to do your job as a pr director but obviously invested in what happened with the mavs and wanting a positive result how are you balancing the tumultuous roller coaster of emotions you must have been experiencing as as an employee but then also as 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 deep down and deep at heart as a fan and those last dramatic seconds of regulation as the mavericks made their comeback Obviously, the Mavericks meant a lot to me, mean a lot to me today, all these years later. But I didn't really approach it as a fan. I was focused on on the, the job. You know, we used Barry Horn of the Dallas Morning News, uh, was used as a pool reporter to go talk to the officials after the game. That was one of the things I was going to I was thinking of. How are we going to how are we going to handle this? That was the first time that we ever had a pool reporter situation which for those who don't know, it's where the media kind of chooses one of one person to go in and speak to the officials and rep- representing all media. So it wasn't just for the morning news. I, I was thinking about that, that kind of stuff. I was thinking about the guy on the, you know, on the, on the staff crew and what he must be thinking about kind of being in the middle of this in the spotlight, which you never want to be. Uh, and, and really just, just let's get out of here 
professionally and and do our jobs. That that's what what I was. Obviously, I wanted the Mavericks to win, and I it was dramatic. But but I, I kind of had my game face on. I would say in terms of how we had to take care of the the the, the media and the crew, and 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 also be able to understand what happened, so I could report back to to uh, you know to Norm Sanju and to the basketball coaching staff and that sort of thing. So you mentioned this was the the you know kind of biggest. Mavs moment, the first big Mavs moment. Did did you see that as kind of the tipping point to really the the um, kind of massive fandom? That did you you know did season tickets take off? Did did interest kind of soar from that point on, starting the next season? Yeah, it, it was a launching pad, no question about it, Brian. You know, uh, Sanju had the great line at the time that you know, there were 9,007 people in the building and in 10 years, there'll be 50,000 people claiming they were there that night. And, you know, season ticket sales immediately jumped. You know, we had, we went out to LA and lost in five games, but you know, won a home game, won a playoff game at home against the Lakers. Uh, it was, you know, it was a very young team. We had a lot of talent. People were really excited. And, and in a lot of ways, you know, obviously we, we got to the conference finals in 87, 88, uh, but in many ways, there's nothing like the first time you're good, and and it had been built. It had been built so methodically and thoughtfully from the first season, you know, with the careful the draft picks and the, you know, turning the Kiki Vandaway, you know, when he wouldn't show up as a first first round draft pick in club history, that became Rolando Blackman, who that night, of course, uh, you know, had 13 points in the fourth quarter. You know, for fans of today's NBA, just think for a minute about a deciding playoff game where your starting shooting guard shoots 13 of 20 from the field. You know, it just doesn't happen. You know, whenever when I whenever I had the chance to talk to Roe, uh, he you know he the thing he's most proudest of I think is his career shooting percentage, which if I'm not mistaken is over 50 percent. Uh, and of course, he was one of the great clutch players of his era, not just for the Mavericks, but that generation that was really the golden era of two guards uh but no no question it was a it was a it was a a launching pad for all kinds of great things that happened with the mavericks we actually did a highlight video of that game and made the entire game available on a vhs that was sent to season ticket holders as a gift and it was made available for purchase if you guys are old enough to remember sound warehouse oh my goodness yes and and and, yeah and uh (laughs) many allowances there Yes. And it was, uh, so this, this was a really big deal in 1984, the fourth year of the franchise, the first time in the playoffs to win a series. Now the Mavericks of course had home court advantage. So we had a better record than the Sonics in the regular season. However, when you look at the Sonics with Jack Sigma and Gus Williams and Freddie downtown Brown in particular, and a young star and Tom Chambers who would go on to have a career very much like Roe, uh, you know, they were really talented and they were, they had a lot of playoff scars. Uh, Sigma and, and, and Gus and Brown had played on their, on their world championship team a few years before. So even though we had home court, I mean, a lot of people picked Seattle to win that series. And, and of course the amazing thing about it is over the five games, the, the final, uh, point differential was Mavericks by one. So, you know, think about it. Going into that overtime after five games, the two teams had scored the exact number of points. Uh, really another kind of unusual uh, thing that, that, that came out of it. And, you know, so just, just uh, de- definitely a, a lot of good things flowed 
you know, from that, that we're able to build on, including the rivalry with the Lakers, which, you know, we played them, uh, faced them in the playoffs uh, again in 86 and again in 88. And unfortunately we're never able to, to uh, win a game in the forum and deliver that knockout punch we needed to. And that, in that Kareem magic worthy era, but, but, uh, it was, uh, it was, it was an incredible uh, time to, uh, you know, to be a to be a Mavericks Mavericks fan and certainly a Mavericks employee. Well, one of the best things, and we'll we'll let, we'll let you go on this last question is, uh, I loved when Alan Stone kind of uh, let the the video and the sound do the talking when Shout played there towards the end of regulation with about a minute and a half left, and uh, just an odd question. But how did Shout become kind of the anthem of of the reunion rowdies and that kind of whole time? Yeah, you know, one one thing I had forgotten until I went back and looked through the the, the YouTube video today is the reunion rowdies brought their banner to yeah. Moody for that game, which I did not remember. And 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 you know, I don't remember for sure, but I'm going to take a stab. There was a guy named Mike Garner who w- worked all the games at Reunion Arena and was kind of the sound and music guy in the early days. And if and those who remember the early days of Reunion before the video board, we had this you know dot matrix. Uh, you know, scoreboard kind of thing without video, but you could have, you know, the lights, you would have animations and stuff with the, through the lights. And, and I, I, I think, and, and Steve Letson would probably know this, but I, I think that Mike Garner and Dave Burchett and the guys that worked on the, the game presentation and the Mavericks broadcast side in those early days, uh, I think they played it one night. Uh, it got a reaction and it, 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 it just organically, became a go-to and then they did some of these animations on the, the light bulbs on the, on the original video board that went along with it. And it really kind of took off, uh, you know, f- from there. And, uh, uh, it just, I think it happened, you know, just very organically that, uh, it, it that they played it one night and it got a reaction and, and, uh, and, and stuck with it. Cool. Well, Sully, we want to appreciate you. Thank you for joining us. And, uh, we love, uh, reminiscing about Moody Madness and uh, hopefully uh, enlightening our newer fans about uh, that awesome experience that really launched uh, the, what the Mavericks are today. Yeah, thanks. And, and you know, the other bizarre, one other bizarre thing about that night is for fans of the Mavericks, so those early Dick Mata teams, you know, we, we were not a team that spent a whole lot of time on defense. And it was not, you know, Dick was an offensive-minded coach, really a genius in a lot of ways on offense. And to have to win a playoff game by forcing two five second violations on inbounds plays in the final 36 seconds, uh, and to shut down Gus Williams and some of these veteran Sonics players, you know, Sigma fouled out with, you know, a minute and something to go, as I recall in regulation. So, you know, you know, Roe was this incredibly clutch player who made these big shots and a steal. But in a lot of ways, that was a defensive accomplishment for the Mavericks. And we didn't have many of those, but so that's another thing that was just so un, un, you know unusual about that that night. But thank you for uh, for having me on. I really have enjoyed uh, taking this trip down uh, memory memory lane. Yeah, well, some things never change on defense, but yeah, okay, we do appreciate it. <laughs> All right, take care, guys. All right, thanks, Joey. All right, bye. So, Falwell, we have the great Rolando Blackman joining us now. He is a four-time All-Star. And, of course, that number 22 is right up there in the rafters at American Airlines Center. No one will wear that again. Ro, thanks for joining us. 
You know, it's a lot of fun for me, especially especially to speak to you guys, especially talk about basketball and uh, have the opportunity to go over it, which is great. Thank you. Well, we're talking about Moody Madness, and we talked to Sully, Kevin Sullivan here uh, just earlier on his perspective, kind of from the, the operations and executive side of the things in the house. We would, obviously, um, you had an amazing game, 29 points, uh, nine boards, eight assists, uh, and shot 65%. 13 of 20 from the field in that game and really clutched down the stretch in both uh, the regulation and overtime. I want to get to kind of the meat of a question, then we'll get to some other aspects. But um, when you were in the locker room during that end of OT period, uh, you know, was your jersey off? Were you in the shower? How long was that whole process? And how did you hear about needing to go back on the court? Well, for me, I was was sitting there with my clothes on, my shoes on, everything still on. And I can remember to my to my to my left, the guys were taking their stuff off, and people were, you know, were kind of uh, kind of uh, just just everybody was happy. Everybody was happy, feeling good as far as that's concerned. And, and then uh, I don't know who it was, but someone came up and said, "Hey, the game's not over. We got to go back down. Game's not over. We got to go back down." And uh, there started the confusion in your own mind as to what the heck they were talking about and what was happening with that kind of thing. So, you know, once we got to the floor and and um, looked at Coach Bob because the thing about it at that time, you have a new new situation with the coaches and everything and trying to figure out what is going on and you get your plug-ins from your leadership. You don't listen to other people all around you and all that kind of stuff. That's where you get into trouble. So you're looking at uh, Coach Bob there, but 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 he was he was wringing his hands so much that it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't feel good feeling. That's the bag I'm sure. He was wringing his hands and kind of had that left hand in his pocket and. And I uh, was, uh, was was really upset with what was going on after he got the explanation that we still had a about a second or two on the clock. So that was the main thing. So you had to just uh, re-gear your head again too, and just uh, go into a just had to go into a lockdown. You have to shut down emotions again too, like like a like a dam, like a bridge of things coming down. Just to shut the water flow off and uh, and get back get back to it. Ru, it's a pleasure to talk to you, and, and you and I have had a chance to chat about this game a few times over the years, and, and I know how much you savored competition whenever you played and, and, and being able to deliver for your team in the biggest moments and on the biggest stages. And obviously, all of what happened in Moody Madness in 1984 fits that description. You know, as I've gone back and watched the game, your performance in the fourth quarter battling with Gus Williams and Jack Sigma and matching them basket for basket and making the big plays down the stretch of the game, the steal and the score and the basket to tie it late in regulation with 15 seconds to go. I want to get into more specifics about that in a moment. But just as you reflect about being able to perform in that moment against that team and that kind of situation, how do you feel when you put yourself back in, in that time frame in 1984 to be able to deliver a signature performance like that uh, for your team and to help your team win such a big game well for me it was just a for me it was just a matter of going through the process of, of what we were supposed to be doing with what coach mata and um norm sanju and uh all of us tried to put together mark and and uh and uh, just trying to put ourselves in a in, in a put ourselves in a place where we could go and win and try to get that done and i had a little chip on my shoulder of course you know i'm I'm a I'm a I'm a A type A A type player when I say A type A type uh, personality. So when when it comes to those kind of things too, I felt a little little bit of a rift inside of my body when when uh, we had won and had a chance to be be a part of the playoffs, and then our own arena wasn't going to be ready. So immediately, you know how that goes mentally. I'm not, I'm not a dummy. I'm not I'm not a dummy as a player as a person at all. 
I understood and knew that 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 you, whomever you are, or whoever made that contract deal, knew that we were going to be new and felt like we were going to be making the playoffs. So I had a little bit of a, a little chip on my shoulder to go up against that, and then I had the opportunity to go into that game. It actually helped me to go into that game thinking that because it was a an opportunity to show people and show everybody else that when we thought. We thought we were ready. I thought uh, our team was ready. I was ready to be a playoff performer. So it just, it just at, at, at those times, Mark, you and I, you and I talk about that all the time. Along with Eric, we talk about that all the time. You know, when, you, when you get into those situations, you've got to, you've got to hunker down. You're either going to be the scared rabbit excuse maker after the game, or you're going to hunker down and be willing to be hero or goat. And you've got to being able to infuse all that you learned, all the 440s, the 220s, the hours of shooting, and the belief in your in your in your ability to to play well upon call now, not later. Yeah. Now. <laughs> so so that's how that's the mode I took. That's the mode I took in that last minute of the, that last two minutes of the game. Just uh, was uh, I was just happy to be able to come through and get the you know you know what to get the opportunities to come through. You know that little floating, 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 uh, floating pass to be able to take that and then. Uh, okay, well, I want to ask you. Speci- a- yeah, I want to ask you specifically about that play. So I, I watched it very a number of times. You're you're below the free throw line before the pass that you stole is even passed, uh, and then you you're tipping the ball way past the three point line. Did you? I mean, obviously you anticipated that, but I mean, what was going through your head is you're like, okay, if I miss this, I'm giving up an open shot, but you made a huge play there. There's no time. That's what I'm thinking. There's no time now. You can't, there's no time to be careful here. There's, you've got to have, cal, you've got to take the calculated risk and you've got to know and think about the things that he may do. And as you go through right side, the right side, he was, he was trapped. Only thing that that looked open to him was was the was the was, the, was that right side throw, and I had the middle covered. Next thing you know, he he went through the motion. You see the you see the passive motion, the arm motion. The ball goes up, and, the, and he's and he's about to. And you're like, up at, at, at he's about. You got to go for it, and and he threw it and floated it just enough for my long arms to tip it, and then it was off to the races. And the, you know, I mean, I was running so damn fast to get to that basket, to just to get to that basket to throw it down. But 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 it was it was time to just to to just to step into the area and and put yourself in the proper process. That's that's the main thing about it too. Because I was nervous as hell. <laughs> I was nervous because I was nervous. It wasn't you know it's, it's, it's nerves because you're trying to you're trying to win. You're trying to beat a veteran team. You're trying to get all these things together, and you're trying to stay away from any of the articles that were written before the series and during the series. You're trying to stay away from all of that kind of stuff because you'll. You'll beat your head down because you're you're not supposed to win. Everybody is telling you and writing. You're not supposed to win. They're supposed to. Duh, downtown Freddie Brown. Man, Gus Williams. <gasps> Jack Sigma. These guys have these guys have been, you know, they can't possibly beat them. These are a young team and they're the expansion franchise. And I'm like, look, man, that's why that's why to this day I, I just love sports. It's the only medium where writing doesn't count for nothing. Doesn't count for nothing. Your mouth, your mouth counts for nothing. So that when, like when the time comes, you walk down that hallway and you get a chance. You, you always give yourself a chance to, if you step up and do your best, 
is your best enough to, to go do that? Then, 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 then go show. And that's what I was thinking in the last few minutes too. Just, just that I was nervous as hell and I did not want to, I did not want to back off my feeling of, 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 go, of going for it. That's, that's what I was feeling. You know, I, I love, and and for some players, they don't have the vivid memories of specific games and moments in the way you do, and that's fine, by the way. But that's one of the reasons I love talking to you, Row, is because you do have such vivid, specific memories of these moments that now happened 36 years ago as we're talking about it. And it's so cool to hear you walk down memory lane and go back over that. Like the pass that Brian just mentioned that you stole, you got a breakaway dunk. That makes it 95-93 with 21 seconds to go. You guys forced a five-second violation, so you got the ball back. So as long as we're on specific plays, after you had the breakaway dunk to make it a two-point game, your defense gets the ball back, and then you get just uh, the shot that you missed made in your backyard Thousands of times growing up, ball comes inbounds to you against Al Wood, knocked down a jumper to tie the game with 15 seconds to go. So that's my perspective on it. What's your perspective on that kind of moment to deliver and, and that pressure-filled moment, specifically that play against Al Wood to tie the game? The, the, the first thing is when you get the five-second call. The first thing is when you get the five-second call and the ball is ours, is to make sure that – to make sure that, that – and, and, and that, as we had gotten into a pattern throughout the year, throughout the time, is to I knew the thing about those type of times is that you have to have knowing, knowing what everybody else is thinking. Meaning, as the time comes up, is to being able to know that the play is going to be all for you to get the basketball. That's that, that's what the point is. If, if you know that, that helps your confidence, and that's exactly what the play was called for me to come up against Alwood one on one, got the basketball. And I was supposed to do what I had practiced to do and what the guys, coaching staff, had confidence in me to do was to go out and go one-on-one and just I just went one-on-one, gave him a couple of shakes, gave him a couple of shakes, he went down, and I popped up. And that's it. Anytime the defense goes down, you pop. And, of course, I could shoot the ball. So that means I had a clear view of the rim. It was just the relationship was just me and the rim. And the ball, ball gets, gets off and goes into the basket. And here we have the tie, tie of what's happening. And now it's about now it's about making plays again and playing defense and trying to do the very best you can to not let them score. So it was nerve wracking. I can't tell you that it was all it's all smooth and we knew we were no 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 no. I'm glad we didn't get any blood pressure tests because if we had, we'd been taken out of the game and sent straight to the hospital. Roa, I know how much you respect and appreciated your teammates from that time. And look, it would be easy for me to ask you about contributions that Mark had and contributions that D. Harp had or Brad or Jay Vincent. But in going back and watching the game over the last few days, one of the really underrated contributors that I wanted to ask you about, about what he did that night and, and how it was having as a, as a teammate in this game, was Kurt Nymphius. You know, uh, Coach Mata brought him in to win the opening tip of overtime, which he did, so you guys scored immediately. But then he had two huge defensive plays with block shots and overtime. So, so his name will be way down the list whenever I think the casual fan remembers heroes of the game. But Kurt had a huge role for you guys, and I'm kind of uh, wondering what you remember about how he was also able to help play a part in delivering that game over the finish line for you. I always remember Kurt. I always remember all of my teammates simply because, especially a guy like Kurt who helped us to being able to to track or, or or get things done at the rim. He was always there to block shots. He was always there to get the over the over the top rebounds. And he was a guy that was a fantastic teammate. Always can cover for your mistakes. And and at the end of the day, he could leap. 
So when it got to the jumping contest, he was up there too. And it was an important piece that he could, yeah, he was up there. He was up there. So he could block his shot. Guys were looking at him like, oh, look at this piece of meat at the rim. No, nah, they were like, no, nah, no, nah, this dude, this dude can jump over the square. So, so, so you're not going to just get any layups and all those kind of things. So it helped us all defensively. Plus he could knock down a shot and he could make the plays on the offensive end where we had a great executing offense where that guy getting the basketball at the top could make the backdoor cut play, could make a pick and roll play, or could, or could hit you off of the screen properly, not just throw a pass, throw the right pass so that there's an opportunity for, for, for a good score and being able to do that. He, now these guys are just fantastic. I mean, you talk about Mark and talk about Mark and his, his prowess and the ability to, the ability to, to stage every, each and every game, Derek, Derek uh, being able to to play the game in that backcourt at the highest level, and also uh, with Brad. So we had, you know, we had we 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 had guys that we had guys that were you know, we had guys that were ready to go, uh, and ready to play. The main thing about it was that we had to make other people believe, but but first we had to believe ourselves. One of the uh, you know things that people remember about Moody Madness was the crowd. You just it was so loud. You always hear about how loud and amazing the atmosphere was. Uh, what did that atmosphere and crowd specifically in that game due to to your confidence and your ability i mean what are your remembrances of that atmosphere what i remember most about it was the comfort of being in a place that i had been before so so we couldn't be in reunion arena for the for the fifth game and being able to put ourselves uh put uh, put ourselves in that place to, to being able to go uh to go win to win the game at our home but but we were home we did. They did. They did do a good job by picking a place where we were very, very familiar. We had training camp there. I mean, we had doggone two days there. Good grief! You know, we had the big Mata two days working up there. So we knew every part of the rims over there, the back places, the places to the places to come back from the bathroom and see a drill going on and stop there for about two minutes, let the drill get halfway through, and run in, and then run in after and get the second half of the drill. So we we knew we knew places to hide out. We knew places all over the place. So it was it was a wonderful thing to have the fans there to scream and to be a part of that. But but we were in a gym of of comfort, even though it was it was less fans and less situations. It was still loud. And and what the game meant was was big also to the play to play this uh, this uh, Seattle team and try to and try to beat this team. That's that was the most important thing. But we were comfortable inside the environment because we had been there time and time again. Well, I think this is probably the last question that Brian and I have for you, but but I wanted to ask, I, you know, you've had other great moments in your career. You you played in an All-Star game and as we know had such a such an important moment in the 87 All-Star game and in a conference finals in 88 and went on to play and in the basketball mecca and big moments when you were with the New York Knicks. So you you experienced a lot of things in the game of basketball and you've uh, you know been a coach with the Mavs and you've seen so much. Why and everybody I'm sure has a different opinion about this but why to Rolando Blackman does Moody Madness in 1984 still stand the test of time and is such an enjoyable thing to talk about and such an indelible memory as we now are 36 years removed from it what makes it stick with your memory as vividly for you and for all of us as Maverick fans over the long history of the team well it's the it's the it's the it's the opportunity of a new <clears throat> and a young team to, to 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 come into its own that was the biggest piece of the puzzle. The the, the, the circumstances around that whole thing of, of of not having the the final the final say on our arena, WCT tennis, which I love, 
uh, I taken our taken our home court away. We, we we weren't supposed to to get in there. And I, th- I just think it was just a team, a young team coming into our own and showing that we were we were ready for prime time from that moment on. And uh, I, I was I was glad to to be around all our great teammates and all the all the situations that came to be able to put us into that area and to be able to come through and to move on and to be looked at as a playoff performer, which was which was big playoff performer, which was uh, which is exactly with the stamp that our, our, our full team got uh, after we won that, that series. Well, Ro, you're a stud. I mean, I, I encourage all of our listeners to go back and watch the YouTube of this game and other games to see how awesome you were back then. We, they see your, your number up there in the rafters, but, but seeing uh, how good you were is just uh, awesome to see, and we appreciate you joining us today. Well, I appreciate being with you, Brian and Mark. Uh, it's a tremendous time and all, all the time. So I hope to join you again sometime soon in the future. You guys take good care and thank you. Yeah, sure. you got it. Yeah, stay safe and stay healthy, my friend, and we'll see you real soon. All the time. All the time. See you guys soon. Well, well, it's just you and me right now, and uh, let's do a little post-game show on Moody Madness, yeah. uh, our thoughts from the interviews and from re-watching the game. It is available on YouTube. Just uh, search Moody Madness Mavericks, and you'll – It'll come up. The entire game is on there, and yeah, it's the uh, only thing that related to that that will come up. By the way, if you if you can't find Moody Madness, uh, then then everything else is like Muddy Waters or the Moody Blue. <laughs> You'd be listening to like Knights in White Satin or something like that. So I mean, it's Said not with hard. such disdain. <laughs> it's not hard to find. Uh, it's the only thing Moody Madness related on YouTube. Whenever you search for it, so it's you should uh, be able to get to it quite easily. Well, one of the reasons that that we wanted to do this was because for those you know younger fans who who. Uh, you know, we can give them a taste of really the first, as as Sully said, the first big moment in Mavericks history that really kind of started uh, launching them on uh, the trajectory, um, really, of legitimacy. And so, uh, but I want to go through, and we didn't do a lot of this, we mentioned key moments, but um, I want to go through kind of the craziness of the end of the first, the fourth quarter and over overtime, and really those you know, the key things that really had to kind of fall into place for us to have have that win. And, and keep in mind, by the way, some key things that had to fall into place, Brian, was that the Mavs almost let that fourth seed get away from them late in the regular season. They were 39-32 and 32 and then went on a road trip to Philadelphia, Boston, New York, and Washington and lost all four of those games, came home and lost the first game at home to Portland. So they tumbled late in the regular season from seven games over 500 all the way down to two games over 500, and then had a couple of key home wins against. One was against San Antonio. Uh, they went out on the road and won a game in Phoenix, and or I'm sorry, won a game in San Diego against the Clippers when they were still the San Diego Clippers, and that kind of got them back on track. And so they ended up at 43 and 39, which put them as the four seed, and so they had the opportunity to host that game five. And of course, the the year before they were a 38 win team. This was their fourth year of existence, yep. uh, and they ended up first time ever being over 500, which speaks to a little bit of the, you know, not really expecting to even be in the playoffs. Um, So they get to game five, Brian, after the four games have been played, 88-86 Dallas, 95-92 Seattle. Both both last second wins for each team. At uh, Reunion Arena. Then on the road to play Seattle, they lost 104-94 in game three and then won game four, 107-96. Facing elimination, they won game four, 107-96 in Seattle. As Sully mentioned, four of the last five games, all four were played in different venues. So they get through four games, Brian, 
381 to 381 combined score. Then you look at Game Five at Moody Coliseum on August, or I'm sorry, on April 26, 1984. So we're coming up on the 36 year anniversary of it. They get to the half, Ryan. It was 49-49 at the half. <laughs> After three, it was 72-71 Dallas, and then it was 95-95 at the end of regulation. And the game ended up being 105-104. So they played five games in a series, and Dallas outscored Seattle 486 to 485, <laughs> including having to play overtime in the fifth and deciding game of the series. Reminiscent of the Mavs and Spurs when uh, I believe it was the 06, was it 06 where six of the seven games went to the la- the final possession? Yeah, yeah, that was, God, what a series that was as well. Um, so we so we look at this particular game, and, and you know, as I mentioned, halftime tie game, end of the third quarter, Dallas was up by one. Uh, Dallas did not play very well to start out the fourth quarter. The wheels kind of came off, and they went down by five with eight minutes to go. Uh, they had a nice little push over a two-minute stretch, Brian, and a row, uh, Rolando Blackman three-point play. Rowe put him up. Uh, 82-81 with just over six minutes to go. Seattle immediately came down, answered back on an Al Wood jumper, and then like their grizzled playoff veteran started making some things happen. And this is the team that won the championship yeah, you know, 1978, years, years 78. Yeah. yeah, they were in the finals in 78 and 79 and won one and lost one. Seattle and Washington, the Washington Bullets played each other in, in back-to-back finals and, and split those two finals. So Gus Williams hit a couple of shots. Jack Sigma hit a couple of shots. And then with 2.08 to go after Pat Cummings had turned the ball over, downtown Freddie Brown had a steal. Brad fouled him. Brad Davis, that is, fouled him. I'm used to referring to these guys by first name, so I'm trying to make sure for, for people who don't might not remember the names to make That's sure That's just him knows. showing off that he's close <laughs> friends with all of these people. So Brad Davis fouls Freddie Brown with 2.08 left, and it was it, it, he fouls him at midcourt. It's what we would call a clear path foul. The broadcast then said it was called a deliberate foul was the language that they used for it, and it was two free throws that uh, downtown Freddie Brown got for Seattle. 89% free throw shooter and made one of the two. So it's 93-86 Seattle with 2.08 left in the game. Uh, the Mavericks get a basket. Then, pivotal moment in the game, Brian, with 129 left, Jack Sigma, the legendary player for the Sonics, fouls out on the foul, which uh, was, was an over, you know, put Seattle over the limit for team fouls in the quarter. The Mavericks go to the other end of the floor. Mark Aguirre made the first. He tried to quickly shoot the second free throw, but Seattle called a timeout between free throws, so they didn't count the fact that he had made it. And then when he came back after the timeout, he ended up missing the second free throw. So it's 93-89. That's with 129 to go. Seattle comes down. Steve Hawes, father of Spencer Hawes, who recently played in the NBA for several seasons, he scores to make it 95-89 with 106 left in the game. And then... And as as low as 48 seconds to go, it's a six-point game. Remember... While there was a three-point line, which was taped down with black tape by <laughs> Keith Grant, who's the assistant general manager still, uh, but literally a piece of tape. Yeah, he was the equipment manager then. Um, the Mavs were 0 for 2 in uh, three-points attempts in that game. Uh, three-point 
were just weren't, weren't a thing. So six points is a huge deficit. That's three possessions, essentially. Yep. yep, so they go into the last minute, down six. And I believe you said there were two games in this series where they didn't even attempt a three-pointer. That's correct. Yeah, I've got some great three-point stats for you about the whole series here in a minute. So with 49 seconds to go, Mark Aguirre takes a shot that was blocked by Danny Vrains. The rebound falls right into the hands of Pat Cummings. Pat Cummings goes to the free-throw line. He got fouled, made two with 47 seconds to go. That makes it 95-91, Seattle in front. Dallas's defense then forces a 10-second backcourt violation. Now, this starts the just Seattle comedy of errors. Oh, my God. At this point, there's so many that happened in these last 47 seconds. (laughs) Total meltdown by these guys. So, funny story is, remember now that the backcourt violation is eight seconds. That's how much time you have to get it to center court now. Then you had 10 seconds, and they still couldn't even get it over half court with 10 seconds. So, it's a turnover. Dallas inbounds, 36 seconds to play. Rolando Blackman goes to the basket. I'm not sure whether to call this a missed shot or a turnover, but it was a play where he was trying to draw a foul, went he very was quickly, was fouled, wasn't called. 34 seconds there, left there, to go. It's 100% a foul uh, on the defender, it, who I, I'm sure is... Um, it was Steve Hawes. Yeah, Hawes. Yeah, yeah. Yep, Steve Hawes. But, but it wasn't called. So, so Dallas loses the ball. And Moreau had 13 points in the fourth. I mean, just took over Obviously, as we mentioned when he was on, 29 points to lead the Mavs in that game. Uh, Brad Davis fouls, and this was a foul-to-give situation with 29 seconds left. So then Seattle throws the ball in bounds. But they're foul-to-give, yeah, that's right. Yep. So they, they yep. just are side out. Yeah, side out, throw the ball in bounds. It's 95-91. Then there's the steal that we talked about with Roe that you noted. The, the no, quality no, before that was the uh, Aguirre foul. Uh, that's, uh, that no, that's, later? no, that's coming up here in a moment. Oh, okay. that's, that's coming up in a moment. So it's, so, so, it's, the, so the second comedy of errors is the, is the roast deal. Yes. Yes. So it's 95, 91 Seattle's thrown the ball in bounds. And after a couple of seconds, and it's hard to tell in the quality of the tape, honestly, I couldn't tell who threw the pass. It looked like they were going to Steve Hawes. Rolando steals it, breakaway dunk, 95-93 with 21 seconds to go. And the place is just going bananas yes. at this point. So then, here's the Aguirre foul on an inbounds pass. So again, verbiage and rules were a little bit different then. But it was called a flagrant foul on the inbounds pass. And so that was, according to the guys on the broadcast, Alan Stone and Scott Lloyd, they called it, that was a technical foul, which meant just one free throw, and Seattle kept the ball. Well, Al Wood missed the free throw, so a chance to put him up three. He missed a free throw. They try to inbound the ball again. This this was just an off-ball foul. Yeah, yeah, it's what we would call an away-from-the-play foul now, but they they had different verbiage for it then. So So an 89% free throw shooter misses the free throw. That's another... That's, that's Seattle stumble three. <laughs> 95-93. They're getting ready to throw the ball in bounds with 21 seconds to go. They don't like what they see at first, so they call a 20-second timeout to talk things over again. They come out of the 20-second timeout, and then Dallas is able to defend the inbounds pass, and it's a five-second call <laughs> on the inbounds pass. <laughs> <laughs> the comedy of errors continues. So Dallas gets the ball off a turnover at 95-93 with 21 seconds to go. Ball goes in bounds. Rolando gets it. Terrible defense by Al Wood. Just, I mean, I know you don't want to let a guy drive by you, but he backs off. Blackman walks right down into a jump shot from just above the free throw line, probably a 17-footer, the kind of shot that we would all say now, well, why is he taking that inefficient mid-range two? But that was Roe's shot. I mean, that's what and, he did. As Roe mentioned, he knew he was going to get the play call. Yep. Everybody knew it. 
the defense should have known it. And yep. yeah, you're right. It was just ridiculous the way Elwood played that defensively. So Rode knocks down the shot with 15 seconds to go. That makes it 95-95. Seattle comes uh, after that, after a timeout, inbounds the ball. Fred Brown missed a, a long two-point try out of the corner with four seconds to go. Danny Vrains darn near tipped the ball in with one second left at the uh, right at the buzzer. Uh, he tipped it up, and it bounced around on the rim and fell out. And so then that sent things off to overtime. And, man, it was close to going in. So it's 95-95 going to overtime. Now, this is a moment I brought up in our visit with Roe that was really interesting. The Mavericks had two centers. So that- just to recap, Seattle had a 10-second violation. Yep. They gave up the Roe steal. They missed the technical shot by an 89% free throw shooter. They had the five-second violation. Yes. And then poor defense on Rose shot. <laughs> five things in 47 <laughs> seconds led to that collapse. You see why they went from up 95-89 to tied at 95. And then the run continues for Dallas in overtime. So as I was about to say, the Mavericks had two centers. They sort of cobbled together the position then. You know, this was an era of dominant big men in the NBA. And the Mavs had nothing like a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or an Akeem Olajuwon, or you know the guys who were obviously and 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 what you would say maybe was the golden era of big men, or, or or at least one of the golden era of big men in the NBA there in the '80s. They cobbled it together with Pat Cummings, who was more the offensive guy, and Kurt Nymphius, who was the defensive rebound banger at center. So so Dick Mata brings Kurt Nymphius in to win the opening tip of overtime, which he does. Mavericks immediately score on a Jay Vincent post-up. They go up 97-94. Then Fred Brown gets blocked by Rolando on Seattle's first offensive possession. Mark Aguirre comes down, scores on a post-up on the other side of the floor from where Vincent had just scored to put him up 99-95. Tom Chambers comes down and then has a shot blocked by Kurt Nymphius. And it's funny because on the broadcast, they reference that Remember, once- Sigma's fouled out. Yeah, Sigma's fouled huge. out, so they don't have somebody to go to down low. And then they had referenced on the broadcast that right after Nymphius won the opening tip, that Dick Mata already had Pat Cummings at the scorer's table to bring the more offensive-oriented big man into the game and take the defensive guy out. Well, play never stopped. That never happened. So he ended up getting a key block shot at 99-95 at that point. And then uh, Aguirre comes down and scores to go up 101-95, and the Mavericks lead by six. So things rock along, Brian. Six is the lead for the Mavs. And, you know, things, you know, a couple of baskets get traded. And then listen to how the Mavs almost did like the exact thing Seattle did at the end of overtime. So with 126 to go in OT, it's 103-97 Dallas. That's a huge lead. Yeah. Or is it? Uh, As we saw, a six-point lead went away with 46 seconds to go in regulation. So Dallas is up 103-97 with 126 left. Steve Hawes got fouled and hit two free throws. That made it 103-99. Brad Davis traveled with 107 left. Seattle came down and missed a shot, but got a couple of offensive rebounds. And on the second offensive rebound, Tom Chambers got fouled with 49 seconds to go. He goes one for two at the line. That makes it 103-100. Aguirre missed a shot. Gus Williams comes down and makes a layup, Brian, with 18 seconds left to play in overtime that made it 103-102. Seattle's all of a sudden pulled back to within one. Well, they immediately foul. Jay Vincent goes to the free throw line, makes two free throws. It's 105-102 with and, 17 seconds and Jay left. Jay Vincent was pretty good at free throws, wasn't he? Uh, 33 straight in the series at that point when he made those two to put him up 105-102. So as pretty much as automatic as you can get. <laughs> as that will come into play yeah. here momentarily. Uh, Seattle comes down. 
Uh, they go inside because, again, three-pointers just, you know, you just didn't think about the three-pointer then, uh, especially with all that amount of time remaining. Uh, Spencer Hawes gets a shot blocked by Kurt Nymphius. Dallas gets the rebound. Jay Vincent is fouled with 12 seconds to go. Dallas up by three. They're going to the other end of the floor for all intents and purposes to ice the game oh, with 12 dude. seconds left. 33 straight free throws made. Jay Vincent missed the first and then missed the second. Oh, gosh. <laughs> the butt clenching that's going on at Moody. So it's a, a three-point game. Seattle gets the rebound after the missed free throw. Gus Williams comes down, attempts a three-pointer fairly quickly. He misses it. That would have tied the game. Danny Vrains then missed a tip in, and then Tom Chambers followed that up with another tip try, and that one went in with one second to go. Now, notice how crazy it is, and I think it's just how you thought the game then, that they needed a three to tie, but grabbing an offensive rebound and kicking it out to shoot a three Not isn't even... even thought about. Yeah, we're, we're play the foul game. Yeah, exactly. So they go for two tip ins. Chambers gets the second tip in to fall to make it 105-104 with one second to go. Now, remember, there's no tenths of a second now in, in the NBA. This is... Yes. Clock just says one. Dallas calls a timeout. Rather than throw the ball into the backcourt, they advance it to midcourt. And... Jay Vincent is the player throwing the ball in bounds. So as was talked about in the interviews, basically it seemed like the play design was if you can't find anybody to throw the ball in bounds to, just throw it off Tom Chambers, who was guarding the inbounds pass. That'll make the clock start and the game will be over. Now there is some, it depends on what you read or what you hear. Uh, Sully did say that, and, 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 uh, and I believe him. I, some reports show that the play from the beginning was just throw it off Chambers, which I don't think that was the play. Mm -hmm. Or that could be just Dick Mata after the fact kind of covering for Jay Vincent's decision. Right. But but you see the Mavs running some action in that play. So I don't think that was the primary play. But, you know, in the moment when you know you only have five seconds to throw it, he probably just said, hey, let's burn this. And that was kind of the bailout move. Yep. Well, rather than the ball go off his body, the inbounds pass basically went right into Chom Tom Chambers' stomach. He turned. He shot the ball. The referee is blowing his whistle. Uh, obviously, a half-court heave from where he stole the ball wasn't anywhere close to going in, and it looked like Dallas had won the game. And if you remember, this happened to Chandler Parsons a couple of years ago uh, when he was throwing the ball in late in the game, and he was yep. trying to throw it off somebody, but he caught it, and I think it ended up being a basket. So, you know, that does happen. Um, so at that point, Dallas leaves the floor, Brian, and then the, the game's over. They're celebrating. Yeah, it's they won it. 105-104. Um, now as Sully told us in the interview, and I guess this, what, what you'll see on YouTube must have some stuff chopped out yes. because what you see on YouTube was about a five minute discussion between the referees before they announced in the arena that Dallas was being summoned back out on the floor. Yeah, they're gone. They're in the locker room. As yeah. Rose said, they're. You know, guys had their shoes off and jerseys off and heading towards the showers. So, um, but it, but in effect, it was longer. Yes, it, it was. And it was chaos. Yeah, total chaos because Seattle is sitting there arguing. Jake O'Donnell and Mike Mathis are the two referees. Because the clock in the arena never moved. Yes, it stayed on one second. And then maybe about a minute after they thought the game was over, then all of a sudden the clock was at zero. And, and Sully had an interesting point <laughs> that the clock operator couldn't see the ball thrown in because Jay Vincent 
the guy throwing it was blocking the view. <laughs> That's insane. So the two referees, and then remember, this was when there were only two referees. There was an alternate referee, Tommy Nunez, who was still, by the way, refereeing games when I started doing Mavericks radio broadcasts back in 2000 and 2001 and in that time frame. So, so you know, just to, to give you an idea of how long, how far back that official goes. So Nunez was the alternate and he and Jake O'Donnell and Mike Mathis are having this long conversation. Lenny Wilkins is there, the head coach for Seattle. The Sonics are all standing around watching. This conversation keeps going on and on and on. And finally, the ruling ends up being that Dallas has to come back out on the floor. Seattle has the ball. They ruled it that so Seattle first, stole it. The first announcement Kevin McCarthy, PA guy, makes is we're replaying and Dallas is being summoned back on the court. Then later, many minutes later, yep. it is, and Seattle's going to have the ball. <laughs> and then you hear the booze just cascading down. By the way, another funny thing about the tape of the game when you watch it on YouTube is while the referees are having this conversation and Seattle's sitting there thinking, well, you know, what, what, and, and they don't have any timeouts, by the way. That's the other weird thing is Seattle doesn't have any timeouts. Um, so, so that's another bizarre aspect of this as to why they would even get the ball back and have a chance to throw it in in the first place. But while the referees are trying to sort it out and Seattle standing on the floor watching and the Mavs are back in the locker room, the crowd at Moody starts this chant, go home, Seattle, (laughs) go home, Seattle. (laughs) So that's also another aspect of this. And as you're right, the PA announcer, Kevin McCarthy announces that, that Dallas is being summoned back out on the floor. And then a few minutes later, he says, and Seattle's going to have the ball. I mean, the place just was apoplectic with rage and booze at that point. Uh, Seattle, then, after this 13-minute back and forth. Just imagine, 13, 14 minutes. Yeah. It, it's just unbelievable. Guys in the locker room have their shoes off. I'm yeah. sure guys have probably cut tape off their ankles at that point. Uh, they have to come back out on the floor. Thinking they just won their first ever playoff series as a franchise. <laughs> the guys on the broadcast, Alan Stone and Scott Lloyd, are talking about, you know, uh, just how, I mean, they were going to this place of, could you imagine if Seattle makes the shot and just how awful this would be? And and, and this is not like, you know, the rest weren't coming to the broadcast crews explaining what was going on. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, they're having to, to figure this if out on the thought the, the Atlanta-Dallas game earlier in the year with the inadvertent whistle was weird. <laughs> well, at this point, the yeah, the ruling was that Seattle stole the ball and then there was an inadvertent whistle. That's the, the thing they came up with on the floor to justify why Dallas had to come back out on the floor and Seattle got the ball with one second left. And they tried to throw the ball down into the lane from half court. Uh, it never came off. It wasn't even close. They didn't get a shot up, and the game ended at that point, and Dallas did win at 105-104. Now, there's a lot of talk you know, in reading about this, about what the refs were thinking. Um you know, Monty, uh, excuse me, Monty Mathis was his son, but Mike who, Mathis. Who was with the Mavs as an assistant coach yes. and video coordinator for a long time. Uh, there's a morning news article from, I think, 04 that kind of does a 20-year anniversary of Moody Madness that got Mike Mathis to speak on record and say he was not on board with this whole program. Right, with what they were coming up what with, they were with doing, the ruling. That right. obviously a second had come off, let's just end the game, but that... Um, Jake, uh, what Jake was O'Donnell. O'Donnell basically was kind of going with Nunez that, well, because the clock hadn't officially 
moved on the scoreboard that we've got to come up with something to explain that and mm-hmm. replay this. And initially it was going to be Dallas's ball, and Mathis was like, so you're going to let them replay the play? <laughs> and so they just said, okay, then it's Seattle's ball. Well, how do you do come up with that? Let's make up this inadvertent whistle and blame it on Mathis, who said he did not have an inadvertent whistle. <laughs> and he's literally telling the security guy in real time, you're coming with me to our little room off the court if Seattle ends up winning this game because I'm fearing my walk to the yeah. out of this arena. <laughs> so the sounds like the refs kind of just made this up because of the scoring, the, the clock error. Yeah, and, and did you notice on the telecast, by the way, that there was a problem with the clock at one point in the fourth it was quarter? A four second differential. Yeah, that 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 they had said that the clock uh ran longer than it should have and so there was a play with maybe i don't know four minutes left there was a time with four or five minutes left in the fourth quarter where kevin mccarthy announced on the pa that seattle was going to throw the ball in bounds and they were going to play for four seconds before the clock started because four seconds of clock time had run off inadvertently when it shouldn't have. And so they were just going to throw the ball in bounds and play for four seconds and then start the clock. they were working with SMU's system, they may not have (laughs) known how to reset the clock, so they just did the old system of let's just start it four seconds from now. (laughs) It's just absolutely unbelievable. Um, That final game for the Mavs, by the way, ended up with Rolando Blackman leading the way with 29 points. Uh, Mark Aguirre had 25. So those were your top two scores. Uh, Jay Vincent had big plays, uh, you know, uh, first basket of overtime that put him ahead for good. We talked about Kurt Nymphius's impact on the defensive end of the floor. Uh, you know, Brad Davis was out there making plays. Derek Harper was in his rookie season and coming off the bench and playing. Dale Ellis had that's 10 three points players off the bench. That's have their numbers retired in the rafters. Yeah, yeah. And, Rowe, you know, that's a great that point. Team. Yeah, Rowe, Brad, and Derek, all three guys with their numbers in the rafters on this team. And just to give you an idea of kind of what this was the beginning of when it comes to that era of Mavericks basketball in the 80s. I thought there were two things about this series from a stat perspective at the end of it, Brian, that were amazing. One, what a difference the three-point shot is now compared to this series in 1984. In five games, the Mavs went two for 13 on threes. Both were made by Derek Harper in game three, the game the Mavericks lost in Seattle by 10 points. So two for 13 on threes in a five-game series. And the series. distance was the same as it is now? I yeah. know it's fluctuated, but it, it yeah. is now yeah. where it started. It was, it was 23-9 and then 22 feet in the corners and 23-9 up top. Um, Seattle went four for 20 on three-pointers in this particular series. And they had some pretty good three-point shooters. In the series, yeah. while I believe... 43 now is the average attempts per game? Well, that's uh, Houston leads the league, averaging 43 attempts. Yeah, 43, 44 attempts a game. I believe that the league as a whole now is averaging about 33 or 34 three-point attempts per game. And Seattle went four for 20 in the whole series. Dallas went two for 13. So 75% more than what Seattle did at at the whole series is what the league averages per game right now. Um, Free throw shooting was such a huge aspect of this series, Brian. Seattle went 71.6% at the line, going 63 of 88. Listen to what Dallas did in the series. 110 of 123 at the free throw line for 89.4%. They set at the time the NBA modern era record, because I'm not counting. Number one, stats once you get past 
the early 80s, at least in terms of field goal attempts and free throw attempts, are are uh, dubious at best in terms of how good the record keeping Somebody's was. Counting on their fingers. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of inconsistencies in stats in terms of how accurate they are outside of just very basic things like points and rebounds. Uh, when you when you talk about anything before the early 80s, so in the in the modern era of the NBA. Uh, the Mavs had an 89.4% free throw shooting number for that series, which is the second best of all time for a team in a series, only bettered by the 89.6% that the Dallas Mavericks shot at the free throw line in their 2003 Western Conference final series that they lost to San Antonio wow. four games to two. Of course, Nash and Nowitzki were... Routinely 90% free throw shooters at, uh, at that time. Well, and remember, that was the series where game one, Dallas uh, won and went 49 for 50 at the free throw yes. line. And game one, I mean, <laughs> a team shot 50 free throws. And I believe, if, if my memory serves correct, they missed their first free throw in that game and then made 49 straight free throws the rest of the way. And I, I really think that that's how that first game of that 03 conference finals went down with the Mavs and Spurs. So uh, some amazing... Uh, historical moments from that game and then that series, uh, just a few interesting statistical reflections on it. Well, you know, to put that game and series in perspective, you know, think back to the 01 Mavs when they beat Utah in that amazing game five on the road. Yep. Now yep. imagine that game, you know, imagine it was going to be a home game and that it couldn't have been played, you know, at the American Airlines Center yeah. <laughs> and it had to be played at Moody, right? And how crazy that would be and how amazing that is because it was you know, for those, for the Dirk Mavs and, and a lot of the fans who started with that run, that was the beginning of the ramp up. Yes. Yes. I mean, that was, I mean, if you go back and see uh, the reaction of Jim Durham and Bob Ortigal on the TV broadcast from that game, or just Nowitzki and Nash, the hug they have. Yeah. I mean, it's I mean, amazing. they were going bonkers. And remember, Dallas was down 2 0 in the series, yes. then won two games here, and then went up there and they were down and 17 or 19 a team that points. Had been in the finals. Yeah. I mean, they damn near won a championship two years before. Think, yeah. Yes. Right. Right. And so. Um, Utah was up 17 or 19 points in that game, and then the Calvin Booth layup with nine seconds to go. $35 million layup. Yeah, is what put him in front, and then uh, and then Malone missed so, a yeah, shot at so the So imagine that, you know, and, and, and I think even now for this run of the Mavs, you know, uh, who knows what's going to happen with this season, but let's say this season has some amazing, you know, first-round playoff series that the Mavs win. I mean, it's it, it, it's that feeling of excitement of something new. As Sully said, it was the first time. Yep, yep. And I think that adds to the, the jubilation, the craziness of having to play there, the craziness of the game itself, the tightness of the series, and then just being the first time for this new franchise to kind of get on there and and start that path i think all leads to what a special moment it is and it's and it's amazing to think of when when sully was talking with us about the people that are still with the mavs keith grant was the equipment manager then and now has worked his way all the way up he was general manager for a short period of time in the 90s and then left the team and then has come back and he's probably uh in, in his second go round he's probably been assistant general manager for the team now for 20 years and this and this particular yeah i mean i was oh two so i mean at least then he was there before then so yeah yeah, it's it's been a long long time steve letson who's who's kind of the my immediate supervisor my boss with the mavs who still works as director of arena operations during the game 
uh, in terms of uh, during a Maverick game. You know, he he holds that particular position uh, among many others on the operations side of things for the Mavs. I mean, he was involved heavily in, in the process of getting Moody Coliseum ready and retrofitted for an NBA game with basically 36 hours to do it. That's Amazing. just, yeah, it's just what history that night was and, and still lives on 36 years later. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed kind of our walk down memory lane. I just think it was really cool to to share firsthand experiences from people who were there uh, with a lot of the fans who um, don't really remember uh, or know much about Moody Madness. They may know that term, but don't really know in depth uh, everything that happened. And I even forgot a lot of it. So it was good to to watch it on YouTube, to read some articles and to, to hear from Roe and Sully. Well, for those who missed it at the beginning, uh, probably our next installment of 77 Minutes in Heaven, we put the shout out. So uh, if, you, if you're listening here at the end, uh, we'll do a mailbag episode of the podcast. And if we get enough and enough good questions, then we'll do it next week. If not, then uh, we'll put some other plan into action for next week's podcast. And, and we'll give people a few more days to send in some questions. And we'll end up doing the mailbag in two weeks. But that's, uh, that's the next thing. Uh, on the docket for us in the uh, physically distancing quarantine era of 77 Minutes of Heaven. You never know what's going to happen. You you never do. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next time. 